World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again today with another episode of The World of Work. Who are we speaking to today, Jane? And what oh. are we speaking about? Oh, James, I'm really excited. Um, Great. Oh, sorry, that sounded really excited, didn't it? Um, so we are talking to Tom Calvert. He is uh, a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh Business School. And we're going to be talking to him about diversity and inclusion, specifically taking a critical perspective. And I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, me too. Super looking forward to it. Let's get into it and see what we say. Okay, here we are in the main body of today's podcast, and we've got a really exciting day lined up for us. We've got a great guest. We've got Tom Calvert, who's uh, a senior lecturer in organizational studies and human resource management at the University of Edinburgh's Business School up here in Edinburgh. So somebody local, which is fantastic. Um, And we're going to be speaking about diversity and inclusion, and specifically some of the, the problems in the ways that some of the theory is spoken about and acted on in organizations. So again, a subject that's, that's dear to both Jane and my own heart in this. Um, so very much looking forward to it. Uh, before we jump into the actual content and explore you know, this in a bit more detail, um, Tom, would you be able to introduce yourself to the audience and say a bit about yourself and your background and the areas that you're working on and interested in? Sure. Thanks, James. And thanks, Jane, for having me on the podcast today. It's a pl- real pleasure. Um, I, As James said, you've said there, I sort of I'm based currently at University of Edinburgh but I started out in psychology at University of Liverpool a long time ago uh, and then I I carried on my studies in occupational and organizational psychology before Edinburgh I was at London School of Economics uh, earlier in my academic career and today I'm in the organization studies group at University of Edinburgh Business School where I blend research and teaching interests um, as we're talking about today partly in diversity and inclusion also in a few other areas uh, around technology change management and ethics uh, as well um, and most recently I've, I've been working on a book which is now thankfully recently been published by Rutledge uh, entitled Critical Perspectives on Diversity in Organisations. And I continue, I'm continuing to work on projects uh, relating to specific topics within that, whether it's LGBTQ employees, disabled uh, employees, or employees um, with different ethnic backgrounds working in different contexts as, as well. So I have a variety of ongoing diversity and inclusion research projects um and yeah that's pretty much me i'm uh, currently coming to the end of the term as program director for the master's msc program in human resource management we have at university of edinburgh as well brilliant well that's an excellent uh summary and a a really interesting background and we we uh listeners know we have a a bit of a pre-chat before we start these um, and we didn't touch base on University of Liverpool. I actually went to University of Liverpool and that's where I did my stuff. So I potentially had some crossover there. We can pick up afterwards. Anyway, um, back to uh, the, the DNI piece. If we think about diversity and inclusion, when, when you think about it, you, you mentioned a couple of strands in your conversation, but when you think and when you talk about diversity and inclusion, what varieties and what diversity do you think about when, when you're exploring the subject in, in your research and in your work? Yeah, it's, it's a great sort of introductory question because obviously there are so many. And as I was describing my background there, I came into it quite indirectly. So sort of while I was doing my PhD, I was looking at te- team working and I, I was looking at what is still a very interesting topic to me, but quite difficult to write about in some ways is empathy. And I was looking at empathy and perspective taking as well, which is a very closely related concept to empathy you know, the classic idea of standing in someone else's shoes or trying to see the world through their eyes. And um, and obviously diversity and inclusion comes up in a vague way in relation to all sorts of other topics indirectly. Uh, and so I started making these connections with empathy in teams, perspective taking in diverse teams. Um, and I probably started off with quite um, tame or, or, or 
or peripheral forms of diversity, like sort of what people's functional backgrounds were. Uh, and then that, you know, you, you quickly start looking at demographics uh, and then you really get into the heart of things like race and gender uh, uh, as, as, as well. So, um, but, but I mean, the, the diversity and inclusion space today um, and this is what <laughs> what can be annoying when you're writing a book. You end up using the word diverse too much, but obviously there is diverse differences within that. And I'm sure that's something that may well come up again in the kind of discussion we're having today, because um, some of the, the strands that I mentioned, like working on disability, for example, in in organisations, it's it's such a specific form of diversity um, that some that sometimes in other quarters doesn't really get mentioned at all um so uh you know but then if you look at the equality legislation we we now have i think it's nine or ten i should know if it's nine or ten i think it's nine actually but protected yeah. characteristics and so um you know we have all these protected characteristics and all of those are important topics when it comes to to diversity and inclusion i think and so often you know you start your conversation around some sort of version of that but then i think you you have to drill down a bit more into what aspects of dni you're going to look at and in what ways brilliant um i i like the the reference you had there to empathy at the beginning it reminded me of something totally tangential and off script which is if you apparently if you look at the sort of contagion of yawning within people particularly you know if a dog yawns people will yawn but the, the frequency that's linked to to some extent the this level of empathy that that person holds more generally that's a good uh, echo I, i'm pleased to hear that everyone agrees with that um so i, I just think that's interesting <laughs> well it, it's surprising it doesn't it's surprising it doesn't get talked about more and, and particularly this idea of yeah. perspective taking which uh is sort of languishing in my PhD a little bit from a long time ago, but I did I did write uh, and got quite. It's a very psychological topic as well. There's a lot of great psychology evidence there, and actually, um, it, you know, in terms of diversity training, when you have diversity training that actually uses perspective taking interventions and techniques, that's where some of the best evidence is you know, for actually changing people's attitudes and behavior, or at least the evidence on perspective taking types of exercises is much stronger than on some of the more popular interventions in organizations like unconscious bias training, for example, which is a bit of a, you know, a bit of a a, a prominent one and a bit of a controversial one at the the moment. Uh, You see a lot about unconscious bias training, but nobody really talking as much, anywhere near as much about like perspective taking and empathy based approaches. Yeah, really interesting. I'd love to jump onto that in a second. If, if we just step back for a, a little second and think a little bit more about you and your interest in this, what what's your driver behind being interested in this, this subject? What is it about the diversity and inclusion world that, that has drawn you to it or, or led you to you know uh, be active in it as an important area? Yeah, so I talk about this in my, in my book in the sort of introduction a little a, a little bit because you, you have to you sometimes have to uh, stop stop and think about it because it has. It has evolved, as I say. With my PhD, it was very gradual and indirect. I was kind of interested in in teams and and, and different points of view within within teams. And you have to bear in mind that was uh, you know about fifteen years ago now. Uh, and so it, it, it was before um, you know uh, uh, other things that have happened since around gender and race in the in the twenty first century, perhaps. But uh, it, it's it's an evolving thing for me. Uh, you know, each project. Uh, uh, can be looking at a very different group of people, a very different set of issues. So it's evolved depending on the kind of participants in my research, the people that I've maybe been interviewing or or drawn to to doing research with, and absolutely the people on the research side who I've collaborated with as well. So, you know, if if you're working with another academic and they're very angry about something ironically that's usually a great starting point for a a research project so often it's been listening to uh people that i've that i've been collaborating with as researchers or people in organizations that i've been interviewing and and participating with but because i research other things i'm always kind of uh, sort of uh, scrambling for a common thread to my research because I do look at organizational change and, and ethics and, and technology and other kind of sort of um, 
complex forces in organizations that have psychological and social impacts on people. I, I guess I've always been interested in the idea that organizations struggle to deal with different boundaries, different viewpoints, uh, and, and how they kind of make sense of those. Um, and so diversity feeds into that sort of sense that, you know, that there are complex forces beyond organizations that kind of uh, organizations have to sort of try and pay attention to and, and make sense of. Um, but when I started my PhD, I also had my mind blown by this idea that um, there was so much sort of disagreement in the world and people just fundamentally there was a lot of psychology studies in the 1970s and probably before that as well where you would have people watch the same piece of footage watch the mm. same football match and have completely different versions of what they'd seen so i was very interested in all these different points of view and how at odds with one another they they could be and so what do you do with all that difference how do you organize it how do you make sense of it um and probably from that quite indirect privileged beginning into those sorts of interests i've i've become increasingly engaged with probably what's more uh, uh familiar to people at the moment which is you know to do with um social justice to do with activism to do with inequality uh, and i think you know in the 21st century there's been so much that's that's happened there even in the last few years so it, it's evolved a lot i think but that, that's maybe some insight into uh, how it's how it's evolved for me anyway yeah it's fascinating and and it crosses over into you know sense of self and philosophy and reality and all this you know our our constant effort as individuals to make sense of this confusing thing that is our existence and and how that shapes um the interactions that we have and and the fact that work sits within this systemic interwoven mesh of individuals in 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 the world um so i completely uh completely get where you're coming from with this um if we you know you touched a little bit there on some of the approaches to dni that we see within some of our organizations and you spoke about things like unconscious bias training and you also talked a little bit about some of the more empathy-based interventions that you see i guess if, if we're going to sort of prod this if we're going to prod you know a, a typical or conventional approach to dni at the minute what do you think some of the challenges are around the ways that we as organizations and people working in this space look to address the issue of diversity or, or lack of inclusion in our organizations what are what are we doing wrong or what's not so great about what we're doing yeah and this is a it's it's a, there's a sort of a tragic element to this in terms of you know where where minorities feel really let down um but there's also a a sort of mischievous element and it's a, it's a juicy topic there's there's a lot of um critical perspectives on potentially where organizations go wrong and why they go wrong and it's uh you know something that um the book project i i worked on that i've mentioned is you know the title was critical perspectives and so in each chapter of that book i was i was kind of potentially um not not sort of um condemning everything that organizations do not not that at all but but certainly opening up things that might be missing or that, that don't get emphasized at all I, I think um let me try and break it down into a few potential problems i think one problem is hypocrisy for example that's a topic i find very interesting in its own right actually but um that organizations uh they do something um but uh and they sort of pat themselves on the back for it um but actually it's it's quite rhetorical or it's it's quite inadequate um in in relation to other things that are that, that the organization is doing or perhaps its overall strategy or, or 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 other things that have happened in the organization so i think hypocrisy is is one is one problem that you know um there's a there's a lot of talk at the moment uh, about being woke for example um and, and 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 obviously businesses are quite ambivalent but then a lot of them sort of jump on that bandwagon trying to to sort of get a quick win maybe or do something that will distinguish them in that way and, and i just don't think that's a good idea i think it you know it, it's really it, you know you risk all these problems of getting a backlash to what you're doing or uh, or an element of hypocrisy or maybe just that you're taking a bit of a band-aid kind of solution to something that's almost quite disrespectful given that it's such a, a systemic serious uh, problem um and maybe these are things we'll come back to when we look at practice uh, again as well but uh, also just 
putting the, the minority whose inclusion you're trying to address at the heart of the design and implementation of what you're trying to do. It sounds so incredibly uh, obvious, but a lot of stuff in disability, for example, isn't disability-led uh, or disability-first. It's uh, you know not necessarily designed for those people, by those people, with those people. Um, and if I could maybe just make one more point on this, I think we touched on it at the beginning uh, when we were chatting about the topic, but just trying not to talk about diversity too broadly so that it's almost like a, a smokescreen. Now, the title of my book, has diversity in it and it mentions diversity a lot but I'm often at pains to to get really specific about context and examples so I think you've really got to take a, a look at your context and, and not not try and do everything in in a sort of generic um, wishy-washy sort of way but to actually dig down into some specific issues and of course things like Black Lives Matter have forced organizations to do that they forced them not to hide behind a, a broad diversity label but to actually talk specifically about race um so yeah those are some some general thoughts on that i think that's um that's really helpful i i've got a, a bit of a, a sort of build question on that just something that was in my mind while you were speaking a little while ago i read about an organization in the states i think they were called um uh, better angels or are better angels going back to an Abraham Lincoln quote talking about, you know, overcoming some of the, the separatism that we had as uh, the, the U S had as a nation after the civil war. Um, but this organization looks at uh, basically um, dealing with political separation within groups and, and some of the interventions that they use feel very much in the empathy type of space. So what they'll do is they'd get a group of Democrats and Republicans together and they'd get them to do things like tell the story of the other person, so, you know, really sitting in, say, getting a Democrat to sit in the mindset of, of a Republican for a little while and, and say, well, this is who I am as a Republican. And then they'd get things like, you know, as a Democrat, what do you think some of the views that are held about you by the Republicans are? And what's the germ of truth in who you are in there? What's the reality of what you want to be? And and really trying to get people to jump into that different perspective and and. What I've said is that when it comes to this depolarization, that getting people to look at things from those different perspectives and really connect with the other people, uh, that's been a helpful approach. Is that something that, do you see anything akin to that? That's sort of like a family therapy approach. This is me well out of my comfort zone, by the way. But my sense is that's a sort of family therapy approach to, to de-radical or depolarization. Do you see those types of things in the DNI space at all? No, not really. <laughs> that's the short answer. No? I mean, I think, okay, cool. Again, there's been this huge focus on unconscious bias training, whether or not it's people uh, critiquing it or, or sort of maybe advocating for ways of improving how it's delivered. Uh, there's been so much focus on that that a lot of uh, other approaches get short, short shrift, I, I think. And another example of this is um, supplier programs, which I was planning to, to mention at some point, but, yeah. but going to uh, another organization who whose real purpose is to supply uh, uh, minorities from disadvantaged backgrounds or from some particular representational issue. And they can help you kind of um, build a pipeline or, or recruit people. Um, maybe it's more of a US term, actually, supplier programs, but it might be, you know, people who've, who've been in prison or been in the armed forces or, or even just people uh, who do happen to come from a particular uh, uh, background. And I think sometimes those approaches can be a bit more genuine and lead to more genuine kind of improvement of representation and inclusion but um sometimes it's these big stories we see in the media about you know starbucks sending everyone on unconscious bias training for the afternoon um because there's been an incident um, that, that seemed to get the most uh, attention um to go back to your point about perspective taking there isn't as much businessy organizational research or mention of this stuff as you say it's quite therapeutic a lot of it comes from sort of experimental psychology but i think the evidence we do have is quite convincing that that it leads to uh, leads to more genuine sustained changes in in inclusion promoting behaviors um, i i've seen it occasionally in sort of corporate branding where i think it was it carlsberg or some lager or beer drinks manufacturer 
uh, and it's probably not the only company to do this. They've had kind of advertising campaigns where they've sat customers or or, or uh, stakeholders in front of the camera who are from completely different polarized perspectives and kind of created a, a sort of safe space for them um, uh, to you know try and understand one another not always totally successfully even on camera but with some you know modest measure of success and they've used it as a sort of marketing tool but i think organizations could be doing a lot more uh, in that space thanks for that i think um i'm also going to just mention to the audience um that we did an episode with i think it was emma walker from autocon who is probably the closest we've spoken to of so, uh, an organization that's a little bit like the supplier model you talk about and they work with uh, corporate organizations for, uh, to place consultants, uh, autistic consultants. Uh, and they, it was a really interesting conversation and probably picks up some of, hopefully, the issues that you've just shared. And uh, the other thing I was just going to add, uh, James and I have talked quite, I think, candidly on the uh, podcast about organizations hoping for an answer in training. And I think one of the things we see in Unconscious Bias, certainly talking to, to some of the guests we've had before, is that that sort of hope that an organization can just pay for a training course and it'll fix the problem they've got rather than understanding sort of the the types of interventions and the time before and after and how those things will work out so um it made me smile when you said that because it's something we've talked about a couple of times i want to um i'm just going to move on a little bit you you talk in your book about something you use the phrase moving beyond the business case i think and I was wondering if you just start by explaining a little bit about what you mean by the business case. Yeah, that's a big question, actually. It's an, it's fascinating because it's like, yeah, how do you define it? So I think it's probably one of the most, the chapters of the book that stands out the most because it is such a well-used uh, phrase. And I, I talk about, you know, I, I, well, for me, I think there's a narrow way of defining it, which is particularly what I'm suggesting we need to move beyond, which is, you know, trying to prove some concrete, almost scientific link between diversity and some financial measure of organizational performance. So sales, revenues, profit, whatever whatever it is. Um, there's been an inordinate amount of attention in the 1990s onwards on that. It's It's been a sort of obsession, I think, in some of the research and practice around uh, diversity management. And then I think there's a broader, more indirect version, which I have much less of an issue with, actually, but it, it's almost like you're not really talking about the business case anymore, which is just that it's it's good for the organization diversity in all sorts of indirect ways through, you know, um, customer relationships, stakeholder relationships, the reputation of a of an organization and its long-term kind of sustainability. Um, but the, the the problem I have is is that I just don't think it's a particularly appropriate or fruitful starting point to start out by obsessing over trying to prove that diversity is good for a business financially. Um, some people have written that, you know, this is a bit of a, a futile quest and 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 then in that chapter of the book i get into other what i call other cases for diversity the legal case uh the moral and ethical case for addressing diversity um and and there may well be other uh, uh you know variations on these kind of arguments around the case for for addressing it for social for social justice um because if you look at uh, diversity performance and you and I, I pity anyone who would try to do some sort of evidence-based review of the business case um, because you'll find all sorts of things you know you'll find curvilinear patterns where hardly any diversity is bad but too much diversity is also bad what do you do with that <laughs> what do you do with that kind of evidence and you'll find a lot of research that maybe just doesn't find any relationship that diversity is under the, the conditions and the measurements used and the design of the research, it's neither good nor bad in this particular version of the relationship that they're that they're trying to test. So I think all this like, is diversity good for business? Is it good for business? I, I think that's what we we need to move beyond. But of course, you will still see, um, you know, uh, uh, vast amounts of of PR case studies and consulting work uh, trying to celebrate that. But for me, it feels a little bit 1990s it feels a bit dismissive um of of some of the issues that are really going on well you, you you've managed to pick a topic that james and i are uh, i suspect semi-famed for ranting about <laughs> um so i think uh, i was really interested when i was reading what you said about it because i think uh 
I think there's been a real shift in if you go back really early industrial you know at least there was a there was some kind of idea that businesses were meant to be good for their community and were were there to provide work and and provide goods and whatever else services they were doing and I think there's been a really reductive approach to the way organizations exist and I think I think when you when you play to the business case I think you're effectively saying it's okay to ignore all the other cases I think that's what you do when you play to your senior your shareholders and to your board by playing to the business case constantly you're saying the only thing that matters is our financial success as an organization and that scares the heck out of me but on that what that I mean it's easy for me to have that opinion the bit I don't know is how do we how do we get people to think beyond that very narrow world uh, idea about why they should be engaging in diversity acquisition? How do we get them to move beyond the idea of the business case? Yeah, it's a really good question. Obviously, the business case, as you sort of alluded to there, it's a, it's not unique to, to diversity. Uh, uh, and so my idea of a narrow and a broad business case comes also from corporate social responsibility and how diversity and inclusion uh, is, is, is a part of that. I mean, I guess one way to go is to look at this broader version of the business case, because even some very critical perspectives would say, um, you can't just trash the business case, right? You have to you have to kind of work with it um, uh, to try and challenge it from within. It's it, you know because uh, otherwise you will get a backlash from people who are trying to run a business with limited resources and they want to sort of stay away from societal issues that they don't see as within the purview of their of their business. So uh, I alluded to Black Lives Matter earlier and, and Me Too and things like that. And I think when it when you know when these things happen and it has like a big ripple effect on uh, on stakeholders and, and and a sense of real crisis I think exposing people to the seriousness of those kinds of things um, is quite uh, is one way to maybe shock people uh, into into really engaging with it more and just expose them and then I suppose there are more benign ways uh, perhaps or, or less immediate uh, ways that, that I look at in other chapters of the book which is um, looking maybe at uh, the history of the business context that, that somebody is is coming from um, looking at uh, issues of, of multiculturalism in, 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 in the different locations of the business and just trying to broaden the horizon a bit um, to, to show um, to show that the bigger stakeholder stakeholder uh, picture um, I guess one more suggestion which is quite big when you get away from trying to statistically or scientifically prove the business case if you if you take a different more qualitative direction which is something i make quite a lot of in the in the book you you get this one well, i think it's a wonderful phrase although it perhaps is a little bit overused in in qualitative evidence which is you start to look at the lived experience of of people and I, this is why it's so great when you interview people because their voice comes through. Uh, they're not just a demographic figure, uh, and they talk about you know what a day in the life of their organisation as a minority is really like. And and I think when you expose people to that, you you can't really unsee it. Um, once you've seen it, it's quite hard. Depending on how it's presented, it it's quite hard to unsee that. Um, and so I, I think we've probably got a long way to go. But I think exposing people to this business society relationship in as many ways as we can uh, will hopefully broaden the idea of the business case until it until it comes into contact with some of these other cases yeah something struck me as you were talking and I, I'm going to ask and you and it may not be something that you necessarily have a strong opinion on but um, you, we, we talked at the very beginning about protected characteristics which are enshrined in law certainly in the UK and obviously the US has got significant education around around this topic as well and um, what do you think about how we decide or how we decide what's going to help us move forward most about the difference between things that will be require legal compliance versus changing behaviors and winning hearts and minds? Because I, I, I always think about when I think of progressive or what would be perceived certainly as in the last sort of 20 years or so as progressive issues, um, I always see that debate between do we need to do we need to go down the road of, of uh, convincing our society that they need to change their laws and their regulations, or do we need to get everyone to change from the inside and, and win hearts and minds? Yeah, I do have an answer to this. I don't know again whether you'll whether you'll agree. I'm a bit of a notorious fence sitter on this kind of stuff, but there are there are definitely people on 
on both sides of that debate. There are, there are some very, uh, and I think with good reason in, in some of the ways they put it across, there are some very critical voices that say there's nowhere near enough progress being achieved without more um, punitive legislation or more tightly strict regu- regulation and, and fast. And, you know, we do see that echoed in things like climate change as, as well. You know, it's very urgent uh, societal uh, issues. Um, but then, as you've alluded to in, in your question, there's this other side as well, which is that, you know, lots of heavy regulation is is not, uh, you know, necessarily going to to address the the sort of informal cultural institutional aspects of it of it either so i've i've wrestled with this uh, uh, a lot um, I, I think um, maybe to dodge the question slightly, I would say that uh, I think law, law and regulation have a bit of an image problem. You know, they are seen as a bit, you know, the, the kind of boring things that organisations find costly. They find them like red tape. But and, and I think that I think that's a great shame because a lot of the things that get legislated for and then sort of consolidated and maybe forgotten about slightly actually contain a lot of important information. So if you look at the 2010 Equality Act, and you, it's, it's, there's some good discussion in HR, uh, people who are interested in, in employment law, for example, who, who, who really revisit that. And they, and they look at the, the different types of discrimination and, and the things that are included in that legislation. And a lot of it is giving case examples. It's talking about boundaries of acceptable or unacceptable behaviour. It gives you clues of things that can be very costly for the business. So I think, you know, actually looking at law and regulation um, just for learning purposes and for uh, trying to trying to introduce some more genuine reflection is is quite a useful thing to do. But I don't have a, a, a magic answer on how hard or soft the, the regulation should be. And I, I do tend to sit on the fence a, a little bit. I think, you know, we talked about supplier programs before. I think kind of... Um, stakeholders need to put pressure on each other and, and work together uh, to try and create a more equitable uh, space for their industry and their and their sector um, and to try and push each other to do that because I think heavy-handed regulation on its own you know I'm not necessarily sure that's going to work I don't think a complete absence of regulation works either and so I do sit on the on the fence a little bit I think we need regulation that's flexible smart engaging uh, and, and that stakeholders can work together on, um, uh, including governments, of course, as, and, and trade unions and other stakeholders as well. Yeah, and I, um, I, I think you should, from my perspective, on a very much a one-person perspective, I think you should sit on that fence hard because actually, I, I, you know, having seen some of the changes in in the sector that I'm from, non-profit sport, uh, I, I just don't think you can do one without the other. And I also think if you go too hard on one without one in in contrast with the other I just I think you end up with a problem either way um so yeah we will we celebrate fence sitters particularly if they're they're doing it with sort of confidence and they're wearing it proudly um I guess I just wanted to ask your thoughts about you obviously you sit in quite a unique place in that you're an academic but it's it's with a very practical uh subject that we can observe or you know organizations and businesses all the time and I from your perspective, where does DI, diversity and inclusion work need to go in, a, in practical terms next? What, what do they need to do to better achieve the goals? Because in, I know there has been progress and there clearly has. We can see that from, from lots of the, the ways our societies work now. But at the same time, some of the problems within DI and some of the specific either protected characteristics or some of the specific industries there is a really sticky problem there where they're really not seeing a shift. And I, I guess, what do you think they need to do? Yeah. So I possibly mentioned some of these things briefly uh, uh, earlier, but I think James was asking about practices. So I think one, one standard starting point is you sort of have this long laundry list, as I sometimes call it, of diversity and inclusion practices you know that we're doing this we're doing that we're doing unconscious bias training we have a a committee we have a role we have and and, and that to me is quite an uninspiring starting point i think it's necessary it's important but but again i think it's about um 
you know, the, de- the design and implementation of, of, of what you're trying to do. I, I think part of the answer is context. And again, I talk about this a lot in the book. Like if you're, you mentioned nonprofit sport there. I mean, that's a fascinating context. That engages me. I want to know like what's going on in that context. I don't just want to talk about diversity generally. And so I have a chapter in the book, for example, on institutions. Uh, and so there you're, you're, it's like, what's the institutional role of, of your context you know if you're uh, uh, in, in a police organization there's you know a unique context there with decades of issues with institutional racism you, you, you probably better you know be look definitely be looking at, at that and then and then it may be that other contexts are completely different so I think get into your your context and don't try and do everything uh, all at once or in a, in a generic way I think we've touched on another issue which is don't don't go in too heavily on on a, on a sort of one note approach and, and, and often that will be the business case so if you come in trying to get some sort of quick win on the business case I think you you really risk um, getting people's backs up a bit. They're a bit wary. Um, they feel it's superficial. It's rhetorical. There's only lip service being paid uh, to, to diversity uh, uh, and, and inclusion. And as I also mentioned, put, put, the, put the minority at the heart of what you're doing. I think sometimes there's a point about, you know, the majority needs to be involved as well and sort of sponsoring whatever change it is but but have have the minority voice at the, at the heart of what you're doing and really listen to the the specific lived experiences uh, of the people uh, you're you're trying to help and again two examples of this in my own research are disabled people uh you know who are working and, and they ha- they're often not involved in the design of disability policies which are often written in quite a a sort of bureaucratic or or a way that just has no recognition of of, of uh, the the sort of disabling influences on their employment. Uh, and another one is LGBTQ uh, inclusion, which obviously you know it, it's a tricky acronym. Um, and I, I've been doing some research with bisexual employees, so just the B in the LGBTQ uh, plus acronym. Uh, and you know, for them, uh, a lot of the the, the the approaches in DNI are sort of woefully inadequate, uh, and they are delivered by people often in quite a homophobic way, or in a way that is is totally uh, superficial and inappropriate. So, I think a lot of what I recommend or, or discuss or advise is is getting past uh, kind of superficial approaches that, uh, even as they're being designed and implemented, aren't particularly inclusive. I guess uh, just a follow up question to that that I was thinking about is I know that you um, you also uh, teach on uh, you mentioned the HR aspect of organisations. And I guess I just wanted to know, what do you think the biggest sort of question stroke problems are for HR people working in organisations who are HR managers or practitioners around D&I? What like what are consistently the things you hear from the practitioners in the HR world that are saying, Look, this is what's stopping us from being able to do better work in this space. It's it's a really good question, and I've probably spent uh, a fair amount of time going straight to the the, the minority employees rather than HR per, per se. Um, I think sometimes HR gets a bit of a a, a tough time of it because they're not. You know, if it's a large organization, they're maybe not in the picture very directly. You know, there's a, a policy or there's maybe some separate people working on diversity and inclusion initiatives. I guess probably that if I had to pick like one main thing, it's uh, which is common to many areas of HR and diversity and inclusion is no exception. It's it's sort of how they um, they cascade the right kind of HR um, in partnership with the employees they through the line manager relationship right so this is such a common cliche in in hr discussions that you know there's there's a problem with bad line management um in terms of translating policy or or or, or, you know employees are still having negative experiences because the hr isn't being translated very adequately by their by their manager so you get this kind of um there's a, a search for maybe where things have gone wrong in these connections between HR line managers uh, and employ- employees in the in the organisation, I, I don't I don't uh, I don't bash HR, but I think sometimes they 
don't come you know they don't come across very clearly in the diversity and inclusion picture it just depends on the on the context and again i'd go back to this stakeholder point you know sometimes it's being picked up by the employees themselves sometimes there are dedicated dni positions out with hr and sometimes of course there's there's huge trade union agendas and investments in diversity and inclusion agendas so again i think you've got a you know it's quite dispersed so i think hr are kind of maybe playing a particular role but they they maybe need to get out of their silo and and i have a chapter in the in the book on sort of um struggles for change and i think it's it's that there's lots of pockets of activity going on, sometimes in HR, sometimes disconnected from HR. And so it's trying to to join the dots with 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 some of those. And of course, some of it now is is, is spilling over into activism and people getting involved in, in in political grassroots movements within maybe slightly within, but also beyond their organizations. So I think uh, the challenge HR has got is, is kind of um, not just writing policies, but but kind of plugging into that that bigger conversation and that bigger landscape. There, there's a, a lot of brilliant stuff in there. I was going to go on and, and talk a little bit more about some of the sort of practicalities, but I think we've covered a lot of it. So I've got a couple of other things that I just wanted to touch on before I wrap us off. Um, one thing that I did just want to touch on and get your thoughts on a little bit is when we speak about things like the legislation and regulation as, as tools to work within the, uh, you know, changes to the equality and inclusion space. One of the things that I'm passionate about and that that I see is connected to this is the entire world of responsible business. Um, and I'm just wondering where you see that relationship and, and where where you see the role of business being or the role of, you know, organizations being in helping to shape and shift some of this from, from that perspective. Do, do you see more of a role of, of accountability sitting within organizational leaders to, to change for purpose of organization to support this type of thing more broadly? What's your view on that? No, it's a tough one because I think you get into this huge, quite bigger space of corporate social responsibility. Uh, and it's not, you know, and I'm, I have some uh, interest and experience with business ethics and corporate social responsibility, but I'm not, you know, uh, someone who spent their their career looking at that. I'm always a bit bemused at how much research there is on corporate social responsibility, but it it sometimes seems to be revisiting the the same kind of tensions. And um, to use the dreaded word capitalism, I think a lot of it is around these tensions in, in capitalism. And so, you know, obviously there are fundamental, quite polarized points of view about what certain sectors of our economy are for and 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 you know the 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 centrality of the the profit motive has always been there um i think things are slowly changing you know there's a lot of talk about this kind of triple bottom line of um you know fulfilling your economic profit motive for your shareholders but but also taking on social and environmental challenges uh, uh, as well um, but often those things come into come into tension and so it does go back in a way to um, what we were talking about in relation to going beyond the business case it is a it is a bit of a uh, a bit of a, a struggle and funnily enough when you look at measures of corporate social responsibility across all sorts of things, um, whether it's charity and philanthropy or climate change. Diversity inclusion is one of the easier ones that uh, organizations can kind of get, get a tick in the box. You know, they can have a few women on their board uh, and, and they can they can do that. Uh, some of the other ones are, are, are much more societal. Um, I, and, I, you know, it, it's not something that all businesses will feel able or motivated to do on their own. And you you get into these other uh, spaces where you're talking about capitalism and you're talking about democracy as well and you know who's actually deciding what organizations are for and in whose interests they're being they're being run I, I certainly think there's a lot of appetite uh, for this in in 21st century politics you know I think it's a lot of grassroots appetite and I think this is why we're seeing um, and even in the course of when I was writing this book which was mind-blowing compared to when I started out, you know, you had the Me Too revelations, you had the Black Lives Matter revelations coming through. And that was after I started planning and writing the book. So I was like, my God, you know, um, and, I, and I think some of that is 
is a sign of of of, of what's to, to come that there is this appetite for putting pressure on the business society relationship and we're also seeing it in the technology space as well and that comes back to divert that's a whole different book but it you know if we have algorithms and artificial intelligence you know in whose interests are they going to be run who's designing them um and, and we're already seeing this this great work pointing out how technology can make gender and racial inequalities worse uh, even worse yeah, fascinating. I just want to give a, a quick shout out to something while we're at this sort of conversation. There's something called the Better Business Act, if anyone's in a business and interested in being a bit more involved in this kind of stuff. The Better Business Act is um, a group looking to change uh, and look to have a UK Companies Act rewritten so that it sort of embeds aspects of that triple bottom line from uh, Articles of Association onwards in, in UK legislation, which is just something to, to think about. Um, I've got one other question I'm going to ask you. And, and again, it's not on script. So um genuinely we don't need to cover it if, if we don't want to but I, I just want to explore a little bit closer to home when we think about the role of the business school in creating leaders of a future that go out and shape our organizations what do you think the role of a business school is and, and how do you think business schools as an industry are doing in terms of shaping the uh you know the, the source minds that, that go into uh, organizations to impact our sense of inclusion and inclusion and diversity in those in those organizations yeah really really uh, on the on the nose question because universities are organizations and again in my book I, I talk about you know really just thinking as broadly as possible that organizations include everything from sweatshops to corporate sort of skyscrapers is really and everything in between you know so there's not um not a uh uh, a monopoly on what an organization is and we need to think about non-traditional forms of organization universities aren't no exception we're quite an unusual uh public private hybrid kind of institution you know some of what universities and business schools do is uh to uh you know to try and engage and create a special space for positive social change but uh, also a lot of what we do is uh pulled in other directions around student fees and uh, uh, and, and, and the managerial uh, processes of running a university in a business school. And there's a lot of controversy there too. There's a lot of lively uh, debate there. Um, are we doing enough? I, I definitely think not. I, but I think there's a lot of great work going on now. Um, there have been calls to decolonize business schools. So uh, to stop teaching business solely in terms of white western european uh, uh versions of of knowledge and the best way to to run businesses and economies so there's been a lot of calls there and and there's been a call to imagine and this is the final chapter of my book actually so it's a good question and i talk about i talk about business education there and i talk about you know how we need to help future generations of of, of leaders and, and people studying business to imagine more diverse futures that you know work better uh, and, and part of that is you know when we have guest speakers when we look at case studies making those more inclusive and non-traditional uh, and challenging as well and you know not just teaching uh, Harvard business big blue chip kind of case studies about the business case for diversity um, but actually looking at what non-profits cooperatives trade unions and, and all those other uh, things and things that are going on in the global south and across supply chains as well and really just opening up our curricula and our impact to those uh, to those sorts of uh, those sorts of influences and there are a lot of great scholars engaging with that but there's a bit of a a bit of a a, a conflict there as well in terms of the future of business schools there's a lot at stake brilliant thank you and thanks for being pretty open about that it feels like there's a lot in stake it feels like it's a really privileged position to be in 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 the you know the, the shaping of the education of future leaders um so thanks for engaging that i i think um just in the interest of time we're going to draw the conversation to a close just before we finish up though could you share a little bit with people about how they could learn more about you learn a little bit more about your work maybe where they could get the book and and, and say a little bit more about the title of the book again as well please yeah thanks um so probably the best way to just get in touch with me is to to look me up and, and email me at my university of edinburgh business school email address just google me you know, calvard c-a-l-v-a-r-d it's quite an unusual name so find me relatively easily uh, the book was published by rutledge at the end of uh, 
2020, right at the beginning of this year, uh, spilling over into that as well. It's called Critical Perspectives on Diversity in Organizations. Um, and, you know, it is it is priced at an academic book price, but the ebook price is much more reasonable. Uh, also, as I'm a non-profit type of uh, person, that's the role I'm in to a large extent. Uh, I've also, um, for my sins, made a uh, a solo podcast where I discuss the each chapter of the book, uh, and, and 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 you know that, that's absolutely free to access and listen to. And I've had, thankfully, some some supportive and encouraging feedback on that. And that's available, I think, at almost everywhere people can get a podcast. So if you look for the title of the the book, you'll you'll or my name, you'll find that that podcast, which is instant and, and freely available as well. Um, and yeah, you can find my research papers online uh, through Google Scholar, uh, 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 through searching there as well. And, and not all of them, uh, or as many as I'd like to be, but a fair few of them are open access. So even if you're not at a university, you can download the final PDF version uh, absolutely freely and share it freely as well, which is a really nice thing to be able to say when you've published a piece of research these days. Um, and yeah, and sometimes I blog uh, and, and write for psychology and HR media as well. So you may see some pieces there. And I guess the other obligatory thing to say, or but but please, please feel free to, is to follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn uh, on, on social media. I think Twitter, I'm at Tom Calvard. And then again, just searching for my name on LinkedIn will bring up my uh, uh, page on there as well. Fabulous. And we will share some of those details when we release this podcast. Um, so it's just time for me to say thank you. That was really excellent. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time and sharing your knowledge. And a thank you from me too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all the great questions. Okay, so that was our conversation with Tom and you are back in the room with myself and Jane. Um, Jane, did you have any takeaways you want to reflect on based on that conversation? Oh, so many. But I'm going to stick with the business case one because I think it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and I think... Uh, I really liked the way Tom talked about, uh, I guess, I guess sometimes I get quite frustrated about the business case. And I think his point is really valid that we need to wear that lightly, but also um, recognize that it's, it's understandable how it's evolved, but we need to challenge it and to look at all of the other cases. And I think he talked about the moral and ethical, but also the legal yeah. um, and, the, and, and some of the community aspects of it. And I think, I think that's really important to think about how many different cases we can draw on in order to make the case. Yeah, I think there's some, some good stuff in there. I've, I've got a couple I'm going to actually sort of reflect back on, just really briefly, each of them. The first one that, that I really liked was his referencing at the beginning to empathy and sort of empathy-based uh, aspects of interventions in this space. I, I, that resonated with me, probably just because I... I you know, connect with that type of stuff. Another thing he said was to do with um, interventions in organizations and the importance of context, right? And the fact that there isn't really necessarily a one-size-fits-all and we need to understand the context of our organizations when looking to make really effective change. Um, and the last point that I think is so simple but missed so much is if we're going to design an intervention for a group of people, whatever that you know, strand of diversity happens to be, it's great if they can be involved in that process themselves, right? So so we shouldn't necessarily impose these things on others, which I think links into, you know, to some extent crossing over with that piece on empathy and, and that piece on context. So let people, you know, help understand what's right for them. So I guess those are my points. I think those are, those are really valid points. And I think there's lots we can take from from the conversation. And I think there's there's stuff that doesn't necessarily need, lots needs actioning straight away, but there's also stuff that we just need to think about a little bit more before we rush into it and do it right and do it well that I thought was was helpful. So yeah. I guess that's it. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hi, it's Jane. I just wanted to say thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you enjoyed it, if you have a question or if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter at worldofwork underscore IO. Don't forget, you can also find out more about what we do, including our online seminars, workshops and development programs on www.worldofwork.io. <laughs> <laughs>